Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart podcast, where healthcare meets business, with your host, me, Dr. Karen Litzy. And just as a reminder, the information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and is not to be used as personalized medical advice. Enjoy the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart podcast. I am your host, Dr. Karen Litzy. Thank you so much for joining us today. And on today's episode, we are talking about moving, well, a couple of things. We talk about moving from a clinical to a non-clinical role in medicine, and we also do a deep dive into blood pressure, the importance of monitoring, interpreting, and treating your blood pressure, and what blood pressure means. So to help us with all of that, I'm very excited to have Dr. Jay Shaw. He is a cardiologist. He has 15 plus years of medical experience and 11 plus years of leadership in the medical practices at city general hospitals to community settings to the Mayo Clinic. He has brought his experience and expertise to the Swiss startup Actia to change the paradigm of how the world's most common disease, hypertension, is understood and managed. Also an angel investor and advisor, he is passionate about applying technology to solve problems in medicine and believes strongly in the power of positive thinking and collaboration. So a really big thank you to Dr. Shaw. If you are thinking about moving from a clinical to a non-clinical role, this is a great episode to listen to. Or if you're interested in the ins and outs of blood pressure, we cover that too. So big thanks to Dr. Shaw and thank you to you for listening and uh, enjoy today's episode. Hi, Dr. Shaw. Welcome to the podcast. I'm happy to have you on and I'm excited to talk about your non-traditional career path. And But I think we'll still maybe sneak in some cardiology stuff as well, if that's okay by you. But thank you for coming, to, for coming on the podcast. Sounds great, Karen. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. And so- we have ha- I have had some physical therapists on the podcast in the past talking about their non-clinical life, non-clinical career, whether it was full-time or part-time. So can you tell the listeners, what was the pathway for you going from a full-time practicing clinician to a full-time non-clinical clinician? Yeah, you know, I think probably the best place to start to explain it really to be to start from the beginning. And I know, you know, people can read about, you know, sort of my training pathway and history and all that, but, but I think every step of my training and, and real practice was one step that was required to then, to then pivot in some other way. And so I think sometimes we think about it as, okay, people are on this one track of clinical medicine and then they just turn right. And they go a total, totally different way. And I don't, I, my personal belief is I don't think that's true. I think every step on our journey is crucial to make that, to make that turn possible. So for me, I grew up wanting to be a doctor. Um, I went to medical school in Kansas city at the city general hospital, which was great. And I loved it. And I learned really like deep, you know, hands-on clinical medicine, putting in IVs, running pumps, like you know, it was, they had chronically understaffed city general population, great place to be a medical student. And then I went to residency at Massachusetts General Hospital, where I was 
I was a senior resident or junior resident next to someone who'd invented some molecules or started and ran an NGO in Africa for five years before coming to residency. So it really opened, broadened my mind as to what you can really do in a medical career. And then I went to Washington University in St. Louis and had a, you know, 1200 bed hospital, you know, just in it in, in terms of serious, deep clinical training and really high level practice. And then after I finished my practice, I did something that at least my mentors thought I was completely bonkers for. I went out and started my own practice from scratch in Portland, Oregon. And I was literally with two EKG machines and an MA. That's it. And so, you know, that's where I had to learn how to order equipment, how to do par levels, how to do cost benefit analysis, how to, how to negotiate with Philips and GE for my echo machines, how to hire staff, how to manage people you know, the real business of running a practice, in addition to actually doing the practice, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners probably can you know, relate to. And it was a big transition for me coming from 2000 bed organizations where everything was just there. All the infrastructure was just there for you. All you had to do was write the order and figure out what the you know, next steps were in medical treatment. It's a huge transition to, to really running your own business and practice. And so I learned that, did that for uh, seven years. I ran the practice, this umbrella overall practice for five years. And, and then I started, you know, dabbling in other things. I kind of always had that somewhat of an entrepreneurial spirit. And so I started dabbling in other ways. So I started doing some angel investing. I was finally making enough money that I could take some and invest in small companies or invest in free private companies or do some real estate investing you know, just small, nothing, nothing major, but it got the wheels turning. It, it got me thinking like, well, okay, what else can I do with, you know, now that my practice is running stably and well and, and all these things, what else can I do? And then an opportunity came up kind of out of the blue to be at the Mayo Clinic, um, which is, I took that and, and really practiced in a very focused way in thoracic aortic diseases. But again, that was necessary in a, in a different way is that a lot of the opportunities that then came my way would have never come my way if I was in private practice in Portland, Oregon. Right. But there to I have was, that Mayo Clinic attached to you is a big yeah, deal, right? And it, same thing from Mass General. Like mm -hmm. you are the same doctor, you're the same clinician that you were the day before. And now you're just doing it with a, you know, a, a name on the wall. And all of a sudden opportunities come your way, offers come your way. So then what I did is I really started an exploration of what's possible as a clinician. I did informational interviewing hundreds of doctors. It took seven, eight months, but that was crucial also for me to learn, you know, what does the chief medical officer for MasterCard do? I had no idea. I was like, wow, that sounds cool. Let me figure out what that person's doing. And, and I would just email these people sort of cold calls, just, Hey, you're a doctor. I'm a doctor. I see you're doing this, something interesting. Would you, would you, would you talk for 15 minutes? And I was shocked. 15, like 95% of them would respond and say, yeah, happy to give you 15 minutes because they had done it at some point in their career in the past. And so they're happy to sort of pass it on. Um, and then one thing led to another and I happened to find this opportunity with Actia, which is a Swiss startup. I didn't know them, but this was the process I went through. And it took that time. It took that work and energy and building on all that clinical experience so that when that opportunity came, I was ready. I was mentally prepared. 
And I had all this deep clinical experience that then was all of a sudden highly valuable in this very different way in this, in a startup or in, in the business world. And so that really, that was sort of the process that, that <laughs> from start to finish in five minutes. Yeah. Perfect. And what did you learn from all those interviews of other physicians doing some non-clinical or non-traditional, we can call it roles? You know, that my biggest takeaway was that I wish I had known about that world or all these different pathways earlier. And one of, I think one of the consistent shortcomings of traditional training pathways is that they essentially, none of that is ever sort of highlighted. You never pay attention to it. Or mentors at these academic or training programs are academics. They're, they, they're in the, they're in that, you know, that in that lane and they're clinicians and even practicing in private practice can be a little bit of a taboo. So departing and going off into the corporate world is, is, I think it's getting more acceptable now, but certainly as when I went through training, it wasn't. And so I think there was this just complete lack of understanding about what those worlds might entail and complete sort of probably a bias that, oh, that's, why would you do that? Uh, you know, you've trained all this time to be a clinician or you've trained to be a physician. Why would you waste your, mm -hmm. your skills doing something else? When in truth, it's not a waste at all. In fact, it's like it in the, in the corporate world and business and in, in all these companies, they are desperate for experienced clinicians, desperate because they have no perspective in whatever they're doing and that it relates to healthcare. They have no clinical perspective. They don't know what it is to treat people day in and day out. And there's nobody there sitting at the table with that perspective. So you walk in as an experienced clinician, 50% of the stuff you could immediately throw out and say, none, none of this stuff makes sense, what you're talking about. You should, you should go down this other road. Or why didn't you think about that? This is this is very bad, but over here, you're, you're, you know, this is a great solution that you found. And they're desperate for that. And, and that only comes from clinical experience. Yeah. And, you know, having worked in different clinical settings um, and now working in a startup setting, what what are the pros and cons, in your opinion, to when it comes to your well-being, right? Meaning, you know, we hear a lot about burnout, certainly in the physical therapy yeah. community. And I'm sure since COVID, it is yeah. certainly there in the physician community. Oh, so yeah. when you're looking at all of these different settings, what are pros and cons for the well-being of the human, of the, the human yeah. being of the physician? Yeah. Yeah. I mean- 10% of the US physician workforce left the left the workforce last last is year. Is that right? And 10% the year before that. And it's not coming back. Wow. And we're not training, you know, enough new graduates to fill those right. spots. So oh my gosh. We're in trouble as a yeah. as, as a field. So although I will say for your listeners who practice clinical medicine, you're only going to be more and more desirable as the years right. go by. Right, right, <laughs> the right. The likelihood of you ever not having a job, even without chat GPT and all this AI stuff. Right, right, unlikely. right. Unlikely. Yes, um, chat GPT <laughs> is not going to replace a, a very, very skilled it, clinician. It it's is, just not going to happen. It is unlikely. So, yes. Yeah. I mean, I think there are trade-offs, but this is my personal opinion. And coming from a physician standpoint and a cardiology standpoint, there, there's the primary trade-off 
the benefit that I see, uh, that, you know, after having made this transition is that, and because it is also a startup, so I'm not working for some major multinational conglomerate corporation, mm-hmm. uh, which might feel different. Um, but in, in my world, at least for on a small company or a startup type company, um, you are, you, at least for me, I have gotten the sense of autonomy back of, of a sense that I am con- in control of my own schedule and con- simple, basic stuff. Like I can take my child to the doctor if I need to, no one's going to harass me about, uh, you know, picking them up from school. It's just sort of what we imagine is sort of nuts and bolts type stuff. Nobody really asks, as long as you do your work and as long as you, you know, you're there when you're expected to be there and show up for the meetings and do and and perform your duties, you're treated as an adult. You know, you're given that leeway, given that mm-hmm. freedom. Mm-hmm. And and I think in in medicine, that has for a number of reasons, and there's not any one particular reason, it has really um is really not the case. It's really a lot of a lot of systems and a lot of organizations the physician is now the highest paid um cog in the wheel and you're a worker and so be it and physicians have have in some cases most of the cases accepted that you know that they've ceded control of the organization over time and in a lot of ways so they've given control to an administrator who now generally is not a physician and there's directing the physicians and you have to be here at this time and you're going to you're going to see this many patients and you're going to see them on this schedule and you're going to do this and and that's it it's extremely dictated mm-hmm. and so i think that is one of the things i think is one of the biggest drivers for burnout for lack uh, you know um a sense of uh, poor well-being and i think also time time is the other thing yeah and time this is also something that as a cardiologist I think physicians, we do to ourselves. There is a lot of, everyone says time is money, right? That's a saying that's very mm-hmm. common. And in, in the physician's world, and I'm sure in, for a lot of your listeners, it's the, it's the truth. The more patients you see, the more therapies you do, the more you're able to build, the more you're able to, that's your income goes up, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. But it's a hamster wheel that the more successful you are, the harder it is to get off. And this is a this is what I experienced in my private practice. This was the most apparent. I worked for three years. I started it from scratch. And at first I was working hard because I felt like since I was doing something that was really impactful. I was building this, building something, it's creating something, building a group, building a practice, building an organization, you know, hiring people, getting people jobs, like all these things. It was really was very uh, rewarding. And then after about five years, the practice ran itself. All I had to do was show up and do the work, see the patients, do the charts, and that's it. I didn't really have to think about much else. And it was a very successful in terms of patient volumes. I mean, at the end of the seven years, I had 8,000 patients. So the volumes were just, it was just a continuous max speed hamster wheel uh, mm-hmm. from start to finish, morning to night. And I, about five years in, I was like, boy, this doesn't feel great. And mm-hmm. I'd rather go home earlier. I'd rather not mm-hmm. do this for as long as I'm doing it. 
So I made the conscious decision to pull back to take a, you know, half, at first a half day off a week and then a full day off a week and then cut my clinics to end at 3 p.m. so I could go home and every day I was home by 4.30 or 5. And I didn't start till 9 so I could drop my kids at school. And what did I, what did that, to me, I felt much better about practicing because I had the time with my family. I had the time at home. I felt the other parts of my life were, were there, but you know, in truth, your salary goes down. And I think for a lot of people, especially single, single income families or single, if, if someone's by themselves or if somebody has a partner that, that doesn't work uh, in bringing in income for necessarily, that's hard to do. That's, that's yep. hard. But if you're able to reduce that velocity on the hamster wheel, I think it opens up many other aspects of your life that a lot of us clinicians tend to ignore, tend to put aside. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where we see well-being, emotional well-being, social connection, hobbies. Those are the those are some of the components for that well-being that generally are not not always, I don't want to generalize, but a lot of times are ignored because of the demands of the practice. But it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. I mean, we all could work 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The work is always there, right? Right, I mean, right. Always. Yeah, there's always people to be seen and yeah. and and wait lists to be had and in, people with injuries, people with cardiac events. I mean- you could you could just work all the time. Charting yeah. is never done. The patients are always there. Right. So it has to be a conscious choice from within to say, I'm going to choose to cut it off here and there. I'm going to choose my own schedule. I'm the master of my own destiny and, and the arbiter of my own well-being. Mm -hmm. But that's a conscious choice that we are not trained for. Uh, and we're it's not modeled generally mm -hmm. um, by our seniors. And uh Maybe it is going to happen now, more so in this coming generation, perhaps, and I hope so for them. Um, but that's yeah. what I see. Yeah, time will tell. <laughs> and now you have you mentioned the startup that you're working with, Actia. Is this okay. did, did I say that correctly? That's right. All right, and Actia is about uh, monitoring blood pressure. So let's before we get into what the company does, let's talk about blood pressure. So give us a blood pressure 101, right? So, because okay. there may be people listening who are not clinicians who know that there's a top number and a bottom number, and that's all they know. And they don't right. want either one to go too high. But can you give us a 101 quick Absolutely. lesson on blood pressure? Yeah. Okay, here goes. So the blood pressure refers to the pressure inside your major arteries. So the artery in your chest or the arteries in your arms. That's where we usually check blood pressure and what it what we're actually measuring when your heart squeezes and pumps out all the blood the blood moves down the arteries and at that time when the blood is moving down the arteries the pressure in those vessels goes up because the there's more blood coming into those vessels so they actually distend a little bit the pressure goes up and that peak pressure during that movement of the uh of the blood through the arteries that's generated by the heartbeat is the top number or what's called the systolic blood pressure. The bottom number is in between heartbeats that after that distension goes away, after that bolus of blood coming into that artery gets goes back to its normal state in between heartbeats, there is a consistent pressure of that artery and there is blood sitting in it and there's a consistent pressure there. That 
pressure between the heartbeats is called the diastolic blood pressure, or that's what the, the number on the bottom is. It used to be talked about that one number was more important than the other number. The truth is it's not really the case. They're both important. They're important for different reasons, but that's what blood pressure is. And, uh, and that's where the numbers come from. Right. And then what is considered normal blood pressure? So let's say for people 65 and younger and then 65 and older. So it actually doesn't have much to do with age. So um, the if you look at the major guidelines, which define these blood pressure mm -hmm. thresholds, age actually has nothing to do with it. Um, so normal or optimal levels of blood pressure is 120 over 120 on the top number over 80 on the bottom number or below. This would be normal or optimal pressures. Sort of elevated but not high would be between 120 to 130 and between 80 to 84 generally. And then over 130 over 80 in the US and in other countries, it's slightly higher, but let's just say for the US listeners, 130 over 80 or above is considered high blood pressure. And there are grades of that, but bottom line is that's the threshold to consider high blood pressure. And if someone, you know, everyone's got a machine at home and we'll talk a little bit more about Actia and what they're doing uh, in that arena, but I shouldn't say everybody has, everyone has the ability to have yeah. a machine at home now, right? So let's say you're taking your blood pressure every day and one day it's really high, but every other day it's around that 120 over 80 or less. Is that the time to call a cardiologist? So the question is, when do, when do you call a cardiologist? When do we start getting worried? Yeah, so this gets to a broader question, which is, what, how do you know your blood pressure is high or normal? Or how, how do you know what your blood pressure is? Like you said, this is a very common example. Someone comes into my office and they say, doc, uh, my blood pressure uh, was normal. You know, I check it three days a week and most of the time it's 123 over 82. But this one day it was 145 over 90. Should I worry about that? And the answer is generally speaking, no. But there's a broader answer, and that is what we really care about is what is your blood pressure over time? So the primary risk of blood pressure isn't the number. It's just a number. That's not the risk of blood pressure. The primary risk of blood pressure is having an abnormally high blood pressure for over time, usually years, months, years, decades. That's where, where blood pressure does its damage. So the risk of blood pressure is time dependent. So one point in the day, one time, one day, one week, one month even of having abnormal blood pressures really doesn't make a big difference overall. What you really wanna know is what are my blood pressure ranges over weeks, months, mm -hmm. years? And so to answer your question, no, one time reading of a, a high reading doesn't really matter. But here's the catch. Who actually measures their blood pressure multiple times a day, every single day for weeks, months, and years to actually understand what is mm -hmm. their trends over time? And the answer is almost nobody. Even people with high blood pressure rarely check their blood pressure on a routine basis. And so, and it has to do with the cumbersome nature of the cuff and having to sit in a certain position and 
do all the things that to take an accurate cuff measurement. And it's just a hassle. You know, you have to interrupt your day and do these things. So the real idea is to get to a, a, a way to look at blood pressure easily, passively, automatically, without you having to do anything different, but gives you that longitudinal assessment of risk based on your blood pressure. Yeah. And you had mentioned something there. You have to be in a certain position. Are there any do's or don'ts for when you're taking your blood pressure? So if someone at home is listening and they're like, well, I have this cuff and I was sitting and I, you know, is there a certain position where your arm to be in your legs to be in your yes. body to be in? Go ahead. Yes, there is. And it is, I'm going to tell you, and you're going to laugh because it's ridiculous. Um, but all cuffs have only been validated for use in only one position and an environment. It's not just position, it's the environment as well. And so I'll explain. So what you're supposed to do when you do, when you're supposed to take an accurate cuff reading is you're supposed to sit in a quiet room uh, for five minutes before you do anything. Don't do anything. Your feet are supposed to be fat on flat on the floor. Your back is supposed to be against a chair. Your arm is supposed to be roughly at heart level. You're not supposed to have eaten for the last 30 minutes, nor smoked, nor drank alcohol, nor exercised. You're not supposed to have loud noises or children. You're not supposed to talk. You're not supposed to listen to anyone talking. You're supposed to have an empty bladder and you're supposed to have no clothing on the arm uh, that you're taking the blood pressure measurement on. Now, Okay. Okay. That's the environment <laughs> that all cuffs are supposed to be validated in. And they are only validated in that position and environment. And that's what the guidelines recommend. Now, ask yourself this question rhetorically. Is that the only position that we spend the majority of our lives in? Position and environment. I'm going to say no. Right. So is it the most appropriate way to assess blood pressure is that's the that's our standard is to look mm -hmm. at our blood pressure only in that position and of course the answer is no but that's right. how historically cuffs have been validated therefore it's just carried on and on and on now because that's the primary tool that we have had to look at blood pressure so that is a sort of fallacy about um, the historic development of you know blood pressure devices that has led us to this point, but that's how you're supposed to take an accurate blood pressure. Okay. Well, that's a lot. Um, I, I didn't even realize it was don't talk to anyone, don't have someone talk yeah. to you. So it's like, yeah. no wonder when people go to the doctor, if they have to go to urgent right. care, the oh, first yeah. thing they do is put the <laughs> cuff on yeah. and the person's freaking out. And so then it's really high. And they're like, well, usually when I take it at home, it's like, 120 over 80, but now it's 150 over 85. Like what's oh, going on? So yeah. I'm sure you saw that a lot in your own press, especially if someone's going to see a cardiologist. They're probably already a little nervous. I mean, the rates of what's called white coat hypertension, yeah. which is what you describe, which is when you're in an office sitting around and there's a white coat in front of you and you're nervous and you're sick and you're not feeling good and all this mm -hmm. stuff is about 30%, 30 to 30, 30%. Of people. That's a lot of people. That's a lot. Yeah. And and so it muddies the water even further about who actually has high blood pressure or do they just have white coat hypertension? And combine that with the fact that most people don't check their blood pressure at home and to mm -hmm. get those other readings to understand that their blood pressure. So it just gives a lot of confusion and a lot yeah. and there's just a significant lack of data in blood pressure. As as much as cuffs have been around for a long time, 110 years, 
50 years in the way that they exist today. And medicines and blood pressure, you know, research has been around a long time. We still don't do a great job at, at hypertension management. Just to give you a statistic, of all the people in the world who have hypertension, which is 1.4 billion, the control rates of high blood pressure are, wait for it, 20%. One in five. That's the people who have their blood pressure under control. 20%. 20% of people with hypertension or 20% of people in the world? 20% of people with hypertension. Oh my. Yeah. Oh, that's low. Very low. And in the US, it's 26%. So yay, US. But still, it's terrible. That's terrible. So yeah. it's still so poorly managed. Still poorly managed. And one of this, your your questions are getting to one of these major gaps in hypertension management, which is a complete lack of data. Mm -hmm. We don't know what our blood pressure is at home. We don't know, most people don't measure it correctly. They don't measure it often. They don't measure it well. Mm -hmm. The office measurements are often erroneous. So most, many physicians, me included, practice for years in hypertension and still do with almost no data, mm. titrating medicines, guessing at what your numbers are. We don't really know what's right. So we're maybe less inclined to up titrate medications or less inclined to try something else because we're just guessing a lot mm -hmm. of the time. Mm -hmm. So that's a huge gap in blood pressure. And, and even in the awareness, just in people, you know, without even going to physician, about almost 50% of people who have hypertension are simply just not aware that they have it. Right. Right. So, absolutely. Until God forbid something happens. Yeah, correct. And even then, and then it's, you know, essentially too late. Right. You right. Know, this, um, and that, that happened to me all the time. People would have a heart attack or need surgery. They'd come to see me and, and I would take care of whatever the urgent need was. And then they'd come back afterwards in the follow-up and they'd always ask me, Dr. Shah, why did this happen? And the answer almost always would be, well, it happened because of decades of untreated problems. Mm -hmm. Hypertension is the most common one, but diabetes, obesity, smoking, right. You know, right. all kinds of other chronic diseases, but hypertension was by far the most common. And I said, we can't walk that back now. You know, you're 65 years old, 70 years old. You can't go back and change that. That mm -hmm. the time to make a difference and to be proactive was when you were 30, when your right. hypertension started, right. which it does for a lot of people in their 30s. And they just don't know because they don't feel it and you don't right. check it. So Right, right. Oh my gosh. Well, then that brings us, as we were talking about data points and people not checking things. So that brings us to what you're doing at, at Actia and what the company is doing to solve this data problem and this not checking problem. So right. tell the listeners a little bit more about what the company is doing and what your role is there. Yeah. So I'm sorry, my role is the chief medical officer. So I'm the, as we talked about earlier in our conversation, that's I'm the primary physician's voice, clinical voice in sort of all aspects of the company. Um, and it's a great team. And what, what the founders have developed now almost over 20 years. All the company's been in existence for five, but they've been developing this for 20 years in Switzerland is a way to measure blood pressure using optical sensors placed on the wrist. And optical sensors are just a fancy term for 
what we all know and a lot of the wearables that have them now, which are the LED lights, the green LED lights and an optical sensor sitting on your skin. And so it's a combination of this very simple uh, wearable device, but the real uh, sort of intellectual property and, and, uh, and the meat of it is they take these waveforms that come from these sensors and they analyze them with these powerful algorithms that they've developed over two decades. And they are able to measure blood pressure using these signals. So it's something you can wear. It doesn't squeeze your arm. You don't have to be in a specific position. You just live your life. All you have to do is put it on. It looks like a simple bracelet. Um, it's very, very easy to wear. And it'll give you 20 to 30 readings of blood pressure a day. It'll give you 800 a month, 200 a week. And all you have to do is wear it. You don't have to do anything else. And you know, so so it really provides this tremendously uh, rich data set of blood pressure and heart rate that then can be turned into insights. Right? Simplest ones would be, what's your average blood pressure over the last week or mm -hmm. month? What uh, what's your what's your trend in the morning versus the evening? You know, those are simple things. That's the easy stuff. But then the bigger questions are, as we layer more around this core technology, what can we derive out of those complex data set? How can we start being more personalized? Why does some one person's blood pressure a pattern make them predisposed more to stroke, but if somebody else makes them more predisposed to heart failure, whereas the third person is heart attack and the fourth person's it's arrhythmia. We don't know those things. Mm -hmm. We Right now, blood pressure management is just one size fits all. You come to me for high blood pressure, I'm going to give you the same treatment and same recommendations that the next person and the next person and the next person gets. It's very one size fits all most of the time with little variation, but it shouldn't be that way. We should be able to get use this data set to really start personalizing both the insights from it and the recommendations for that person and that's really what we're working on that's the true you know sort of transformative power of it and are they there at that point like as the data that you're collecting have you um found any of those insights into patient care yet or do you need more data the data is there what we need now, and and we have about 30,000 or so active users in Europe, and we have a number of uh, clinicians and program organizations using it. What we need to do now is take those high rich data sets and compare them to health outcomes data. So looking at medical charts and looking at different disease states and different outcomes and different medications, and then looking at what, what those patterns mean in the context of what we can measure and see mm -hmm. in the traditional sense. That's what we're doing now. So the data is there. Now we have to go figure it out, figure out what part of that data means what, and it's a right. puzzle, but right. that's, that's where we're, that's where we're right. heading. So when yeah. the, that's when all the fun happens. Yeah. yeah. When you get to kind of put all this together yeah. and then be able to make recommendations based on the data you're getting from not the group as a whole, but bring that down to the individual person. And I will say it's not available in the U.S. yet. Is that correct? No, not yet. Yeah. We're working with the FDA, but it's not available yet in the U.S., uh, unfortunately. Um, it's still going to take time, but, mm -hmm. the, uh, but it's available in Europe and we're expanding access to multiple other countries as we speak. Yeah. Perfect. So for our European audience, um, it's definitely something to check out. Yes. And where can people find out more information about Actia? 
Right now, all of it's on our website. So just actia.com, A-K-T-I-I-A.com, and it has everything. It has how it works. It has what the device is. It has um, all our research behind it. It's all posted publicly. We don't, it's all, we want it to be very transparent and um, and you can order it online. So it's all there on the website. And I guess, what is the ultimate vision and mission for the company? So I would say there's two two parts to that, but the primary one, the surreal guiding star is we want to help, you know, 100 million people with hypertension be under better control. But, and as grand as that sounds, I think that is actually still too small. Um, I think what really what we need to do, if you think about it in the context of your, everyone's experience with healthcare uh, environment, it's a very reactive process, right? You mm-hmm. go to a physician, you get, you get you ask a bunch of questions, you get some labs, you ask about what's happened in the last six months or a year, and you get some regimen for the next six months or a year. And so come back in six months or a year and call me if you have a problem. It's extremely reactive. Cardiology is the best example that I can think of. Come to me when you have a heart attack. That's when right. people come to me. Right. Okay. That's great. And we have great treatments for heart attacks, surgeries, et cetera. That's all good. We, we really, obviously those are transformative things, but why not talk about prevention now? You know, why not talk about how can we prevent some of these things from happening as much as we can? How can we lower people's risk? How can we be proactive in the gaps of time that are so much bigger than the office visits? 15 minutes once a year. What about the rest of the 365 days and, yep. you know, 1400 minutes that happens in between? What, how can we do to up-level somebody's activation and empowerment and knowledge um, in a way that's consistent for them. And so what we do is we kind of take our core technology and we wrap it with layers of other interactive, you know, uh, um, interactive features with the smartphone. So people can then start to interact with their data more frequently and become empowered and, and activated by the sort of expert knowledge that's at their fingertips rather than only when they go to see a physician. So we want right. to supplement what you get from healthcare, not replace it, supplement it, but make it available on your time in your location, regardless of access to care, regardless of where you are in the world, be in rural India or downtown Manhattan and get the same knowledge in the same yeah. in the same way. And, and that's really what we're aiming to do yeah. to, to sort of transform those major white spaces between episodes of care. Education, 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 right? Yeah. yeah. In the yeah. end, right? That's, I mean, I'm a cardiologist, you know, and and people come to me not for surgery. They don't come for procedures. They don't, what they come to us for and to all your listeners and to you is they come for our knowledge. That's what they come for. They come for our advice about what to do next. And then, yes, we help them do it. But what is our, they come for the knowledge. And so that is the true sort of, uh, captive power of um, the healthcare and all this expertise that we've gained through all this time and energy mm-hmm. and efforts and study, we can make that more widely available uh, to a lot more people if we use technology to do that. Yeah. And I think that that is certainly the direction healthcare is going in. And as practitioners, I think it's incumbent upon us to kind of prep our patients and yeah. let them know that these things some already exist, some are on the horizon, and this is how you can take control of your own self Absolutely. and and have a better understanding of maybe when the system isn't going right, instead right. of, like you said, 
you're in your thirties. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I don't, I don't know right. what's going on. <laughs> that's, you know? about, that's about right for me, at least. It's like, right? I didn't go get checked out or anything. I don't know. I feel <laughs> fine. So instead of yeah. that, hey, let's get a little more knowledge and a little more data to kind of help you move forward in a way that is right. healthy and with longevity and exactly. let everyone live a long, healthy life. Um, well, I want to thank you for sharing your story from going from a, a a uh, highly uh, involved clinical career to now a in a non-clinical role, although, like I said before, just non-patient care role, because I would argue right. your role is still very much clinical. Um, yes. Where can people find more information about you if they have any questions? And again, just repeat the, that website for Actia. Sure. So Actia's website is uh, actia.com, A-K-T-I-I-A.com. We have all on, on all the social channels. We're at, at Actia Global. And then you can find me on LinkedIn. And, um, you know, maybe in the show notes, we can list the, the LinkedIn profile and everything. Perfect. And they can always hit me up there. I will definitely do that. So that will be in the show notes. And you can get the show notes on any podcast platform that you're listening to. Those show notes are there. So before we end, I have one last question. It's one I ask everyone. And knowing where you are now in your life and career, what advice would you give to, let's say, your 20-year-old self? So I'm assuming in undergrad, 20? Yeah. Mm -hmm, about. Yeah. Um, I would say uh, never stop challenging yourself and take more risk. Mm -hmm. My my 40-year-old self is what you tell my 20-year-old self to be more risky. Take more risk. Do things that um, do things that that push push you and challenge you in different ways. And because that I've only done that lately in my career, late in my, not late because I'm not late, but, but later. And I wish I had done that sooner. And every time I did, and every time I really pushed the boundaries and got uncomfortable, I was always glad I did in a way that often was unexpected. I didn't mm -hmm. know what the result would be. I didn't know what the next step might be. But when I did it, and then on the other side, even if even if it didn't work out, honestly, even if if you even if I failed at doing something, I tried and and it didn't work. I was always glad that I tried, and I, I learned a lot from those experiences. A lot more, and, and people have said this before. A lot more than when it went well and when I had a success mm -hmm. in an expected way. So that's the biggest message I would give to myself. Yeah, great advice. Take more risks. Um, to to a to a certain extent, a certain but, I, extent. but yeah. I love it. I think it's yeah. great. Um, Dr. Shaw, thank you so much for coming on. Loved hearing about your career and thank you so much for the BP 101. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, Karen. I really appreciate it. Anytime. And everyone, thanks so much for listening. Have a great couple of days and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to leave us your questions and comments at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com.